President of the United States has complete and total control over the U.S. nuclear arsenal. There are no checks and balances. Congress doesn't get to approve the decision. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs doesn't get a veto. And the Supreme Court doesn't get to review whether the order from the President to end the world is constitutional or not. And that system is by design. But why? How did the system get this way? What are the actual mechanics involved in the president deciding he wants to launch one or 1,000 nuclear weapons at the drop of a hat? And is it about time America rethought this system? Welcome to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, a policy analyst at the Center, and your host. Now, we had already planned to put a podcast talking about the mechanics of this so-called nuclear football and the transition of the satchel from one president to another ahead of Inauguration Day on January 20th. However, with the insurrectionist attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th, instigated by President Trump, and the subsequent call for his impeachment, led Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to discuss potential safeguards that could put in place to block Trump from launching our nuclear weapons with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Suddenly, people everywhere started to realize that maybe it's not a great idea for a person deemed too dangerous for Twitter to still be able to launch nuclear weapons all by himself. So, we decided that we might want to expand the scope of this episode, beyond just the logistics and reasoning involved in the transfer of the nuclear football alongside the transfer of power. We've talked on previous episodes of this podcast with Alex Weatherstein and Fred Kaplan about how the current nuclear system that put power in the hands of one person came to be. And we'll address that briefly again today. But today we're also going to talk more about the safeguards that Speaker Pelosi is said to have wanted to put in place. And here's why. There are no real safeguards. U.S. launch authority is set up in such a way that once the president gives the order to launch nuclear weapons, it goes down the chain with no interruptions, no checks and balances, and that's by design. Leaders during the Cold War envisioned a nuclear bolt from the blue that would decapitate U.S. leadership and thereby our means to retaliate to a Russian nuclear strike. Thus, the designers of our nuclear command and control system didn't want any potential interruptions from getting in the way of an order to launch, even if those were questions about whether or not the president was still fit to lead. In fact, the services have actually worked to iron the kinks out of the system. In historic testing, launch officers who paused to ask if the order was legitimate or legal have been removed. The system is designed to have as few gaps as possible. The question of whether or not the order to launch a 1,000 nukes at Russia is justified or proportional is not baked in. Rather, it is assumed that the president has been properly advised and that he or she would make a decision with our best interests in mind. Dealing with a, quote, unhinged president, as Nancy Pelosi is said to have called Trump following the sack of the Capitol, is not part of the system. Rather, it is assumed that if the president were not capable of commanding our nuclear arsenal, or could not be trusted to do so, then the options for removing that president, like the 25th Amendment or the impeachment process, would have already been activated. Thus, while we will likely never know what General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, may have said to assure the House Speaker, it would likely have to have been extra-constitutional. But let's dig into this issue more deeply. 
In order to discuss the nuclear football, as well as the potential human and operational gaps in our nuclear command and control infrastructure, we talked to Stephen Schwartz, a senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and author of Atomic Audit, The Costs and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Obviously, this is a very strange and surreal time to be talking about this issue. Um, We're recording this almost a week out from the insurrectionist attack on the United States Capitol, and we've seen a lot of confusion and indignation from folks about whether or not President Trump still has the ability to command U.S. nuclear weapons. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi apparently asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chairman Mark Milley, if there were any safeguards on Trump's ability to launch nuclear weapons while he is in this current, quote, unhinged state. So I'm going to start us off, uh, Stephen, by asking you just straight out, are there any safeguards against the president launching one or a thousand nuclear weapons if he decides that he wants to? Well, there there is one safeguard that the military is obligated to not follow illegal orders. And so if they if the officials in charge of talking to the president, if he calls them up one day and says, I want to drop a nuclear bomb on Iran, or Kim Jong-un is really bugging me this week, I'd like to take out his palace in Pyongyang, uh, they have the capacity to determine that and that order is illegal and therefore not follow it. There's two problems with that. One is that there's severe time constraints under any of these scenarios. Two, lawyers aren't just sitting around waiting to adjudicate on something like this. Uh, three, everything that is in the presidential decision handbook, which is the official notebook of all the prepared nuclear options, nuclear strike options that are available to the president, have already been legally vetted. So they are legal by default. And four, the president can fire anybody who refuses to obey his orders and replace them until he finds somebody that's willing to do his bidding. So that's not very comforting. Right. So I, I you know, I love this idea that Mark Milley, you know, hears, hey, the president wants to launch, you know, let's assume that he's in the room when the president, when the president decides that he wants to launch nuclear weapons. Uh, but then he says, well, it's just a hold a beat here. I, I got to go call my lawyer. You know, it's really sort of an absurd thing. The system is set up under the belief that the president has the best interests of Americans in mind and that would only use nuclear weapons under sort of really extreme circumstances. Uh, it assumes also that that the cabinet would be willing to invoke the 25th Amendment or something if he's not in a state to be able to be trusted with those nuclear codes, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is a completely unprecedented situation. The last time we had somebody concerned about the president going off and potentially using or threatening to use nuclear weapons was during the Watergate era, 1974. And Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger reportedly, there's no definitive proof about this, but reportedly issued orders or whatever you want to call them to people in the Pentagon saying, if the president calls you and asks you to do something with nuclear weapons, contact me first. Now, that's completely extra constitutional. There's no, that's not how this works at all. The whole system is designed to operate quickly and without question. And indeed, military officials obey orders. That's what they do. The system, this is not a debating society. 
They don't, the president doesn't call and they say, you know, that really isn't a good idea. Or have you considered something else? Right. And there's even been a couple of high profile cases where during testing, launch officers have said, well, how do I know that this is a legal order? And those people have been removed from the Air Force or from the chain of command. January the 11th was the anniversary of the date on which the Air Force recommended discharging Major Harold Herring, who was at the time a 38-year-old Air Force officer, a decorated pilot with 20 years of service, who two years earlier had gone to ICBM missile training at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And in the course of the training, he asked a question that might occur to many people, um, but it was 1973 and it was during Watergate. And he was concerned, as many people were, about President Nixon's state of mind. And he said, how will I know that the order that I am given is issued by a sane president? And they removed him from the program. They tried to say that he was mentally incapable of carrying out the job. That didn't fly. And they drummed him out of the Air Force because he had the temerity to ask, how do I know that what you're asking me to do is the right thing and the legal thing to do? Real quick, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit more about why the system was set up the way it is? Where does the president's sole authority to launch nuclear weapons come from exactly? Uh, it comes from the fact that uh, during World War II, the military, of course, was running the Manhattan Project. The Army was running the Manhattan Project and was in, you know, along with the War Department, was in charge of the development and planning for the use of nuclear weapons. And President Roosevelt, of course, had been briefed and knew about it, and then he died. And then Truman became president. And 12 days later, he was finally told by Secretary of War Henry Stimson what was going on. Um, but up to that point, he'd only had very limited knowledge of it. As a senator, he'd actually tried to investigate expenditures for the Manhattan Project because they were being conducted in secret. And he was alarmed by the amount of money that was being siphoned off for he didn't know what. And he was waved away and told, you don't want to talk, you don't want to go and look about this. So it came as a total surprise to him, basically, what was going on. But, you know, contrary to popular opinion, President Truman didn't order the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He simply assented to them. He was informed that it was happening and he didn't say no. But after the bombing of Nagasaki, he was so alarmed that that had happened without his express approval and so quickly after the first bombing and that other weapons were in the pipeline and could be delivered soon thereafter, that he essentially held up his hand and he said, no, we're not doing this anymore unless I expressly order you to do so. And that's where the notion of presidential nuclear authority um, comes from. It was codified by the National Security Council in 1948, and that's, that's where it is now. And I think as we think more seriously about the future of the New START Treaty, if it's extended by soon-to-be President Biden, uh, as we think about what future arms control agreements might look like and what you know control of these weapons might look like, then perhaps we can revisit that and come up with a new and better way of addressing this. Right, absolutely. I think that that's such an important point. The fact that the essentially the active nuclear stockpile today is 2,000 times larger than what it was in 1945 but that we haven't changed the way that essentially command and control is delegated since 1948, given the size and strength and scope and capability of these weapons. Right. And given all the challenges that we've seen that, that you've already pointed out, I think that it is so important that, you know, if there was ever a time 
to sort of reinvestigate how, when, and where and why these weapons are chosen to be used, it would be now. And Congress needs to be in the loop a lot more. I mean, two, three years ago, 2017, November 2017, Senate Foreign Relations Committee held its first hearing on nuclear command and control issues in like 30 years. <laughs> and at that hearing, they heard from the former head of U.S. Strategic Command who uh, kind of sheepishly admitted that he wasn't sure what would happen if he went to the president, if the president rather came to him and said, I, I want to launch a nuclear attack. And he said, sir, that's not legal. He wasn't, he just kind of smiled and laughed. He said, I really don't know what would happen. This is all hypothetical. And the senators were like, well, we're holding a hearing to try to figure this out. Um, and just, you know, a few, like a, like a week before, the then commander of U.S. Strategic Command, uh, General John Hyten, who is now the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said at a security conference in Canada that because this had all been bubbling up in the press, what are what is the military going to do if Trump orders them to use nuclear weapons out of the blue or illegally, whatever? And Hyten said, look, it's not that complicated. Uh, I advise the president and the president tells me what to do. And if the president says, I want you to do this and I say it's illegal, he'll say, how do I make it legal? And I'll say, well, let's talk about that. It's not about how to stop the president. It's how to try to make it legal. And again, all of the war plan options, the dozens and dozens of options that are in there for going after China and Russia and North Korea and Iran, who knows what else, they've all been legally approved by the Pentagon. So if the president verifies his authority and picks out one of those plans by name, they legally have to carry it out. And so the only check on the president, to get back to one of your early questions, to prevent a president from doing something that he is desperate to do that the military thinks is wrong is mass insubordination. I don't think we should pin our hopes on mass insubordination to save the United States or the world. Wow, that's super interesting, Stephen. Thank you. So let's drill down on this a little bit more. Um, you mentioned the nuclear football, and I think that this is sort of interesting. This is something that people have seen represented in Hollywood before. You know, it's I think that when Americans think of the president and the nuclear codes, if they have an image of what that looks like, this is sort of what it is. But tell folks listening, what are the actual mechanics involved here? What is the nuclear football? How does that sort of work? So the first thing to know is that the president doesn't actually possess the quote unquote nuclear codes. The codes to launch our nuclear weapons are kept under the tight control of the Department of Defense, specifically in the National Military Command Center and U.S. Strategic Command, which has control over all the nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. What the president has are codes that verify his identity, an alphanumeric code, and he carries it with him at all times, or he's supposed to. It's a specially laminated card. It's prepared by the National Security Agency, as are all the other codes to actually launch the weapons. And it's called the Biscuit. And it's been portrayed in a number of movies and television shows over the years. It's a wallet-sized card. And if the president decides to authorize the use of nuclear weapons, either because the United States is under attack or he's having a really bad day, first he calls the, the Pentagon. He gets a hold of the duty officer at the National Military Command Center, or again, another command center, if that one is not available. And the officer will ask him to verify his identity because the president and the president alone has this authority. So you want to make sure it's the right person. And the president will, they will give him a challenge response code, an alphanumeric code. So like Delta Echo 5. 
And on the biscuit, on the card that the president has are a series of codes, and he has to pick out the right one to respond to it. And reportedly, there are a number of different codes on the card such that if it falls into the wrong hands, nobody would know exactly what the right one is. So the president has the card and he also has to memorize what the right one is. If he gives the right response, they will then ask what he wants to do. He will then give the order, looking in the in the presidential decision handbook, which is a binder of all the available war plan options, and there are many, many, many of them for all sorts of contingencies. Now he doesn't have to use those options. He, you know, that would be the assumption, but he could call for something off the menu, as it were. And in fact, the book is sort of, it's organized like a menu. Some people have described it as sort of like a Chinese menu, one from column A, one from column B. And it apparently uses pictographs or cartoons to depict what the option is about and also what kind of damage you could expect from it. Uh, And then the order is transmitted down the chain of command. The uh, so-called operators at the other end, the uh, folks in the missile silos, the folks on the submarines, folks at bomber bases, they receive the order, they verify that it is a, a correct order, a valid order, and then they, they input the codes to unlock the weapons, and it's off to the races, as it were. So that's how it works. But the flickball is basically, it's, it's a briefcase. It's not full of sophisticated electronic equipment. The football is just full of paper, lots and lots of paper. The decision handbook about all the different options that are available. It's got information about how the president can use the um, emergency broadcast system to talk to the public uh, during or after an attack. It has information about the various alternate relocation facilities that he can go to, uh, land-based and airborne, uh, should he so desire. And uh, all of that is is carried with the president. The aide carrying the uh, football carries with him a secure phone that would be used to contact the Pentagon to initiate uh, this process. But that's basically it. And I know that this is all of this is very opaque for security reasons. How and the actual technical manifestations of how nations control their their nuclear weapon systems is opaque by design. Um, but to the best of your knowledge, does our system differ to other nations' command and control systems? Every every nation does things a little bit differently. And we know mo- the most about the United States because it's the most open country. We know less about other countries. So uh, Russia, for example, also has an equivalent to the football. They call it the Cheget. And the president of Russia along with the defense minister and the chief of the general staff collectively would make that decision. So unlike the United States where the president and the president alone, there's three people that have to um, get together. In the United Kingdom, prime minister is vested with the authority, although there, there's a presumption that he or she would consult with his or her cabinet before making that decision. And then the United Kingdom, unlike every other country, that deploys nuclear weapons has something called the letters of last resort, which when every new prime minister comes into office, one of the very first things they do is sit down and write a letter to the commanders of the submarines that the United Kingdom deploys, telling them what they should do in the event of a catastrophic nuclear war, uh, in the event that they cannot contact the prime minister or any other authority. And those letters are sealed up, and there's reportedly several options. 
you know, ally yourself with an allied command, fire all your weapons, await further orders, or, you know, use your own best judgment. Those are sealed up. They're put in a locked safe, which was inside another locked safe on the submarine. And they sit there as long as the prime minister is prime minister. Um, so that that's a unique system to them. Israel, the prime minister doesn't quite have the authority. So it's a, it's a sort of a combination between the prime minister and the defense minister. But again, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit opaque about how that works. Uh, France also has a uh, satchel that accompanies the French president. And he or she has similar authorities to the US president. So basically, a lot of the countries that have nuclear weapons have vested enormous authority in one person or maybe in a couple of cases, two people. Uh, it's very rare that you'll have a group of people. Pakistan might be sort of unique in that regard um, in that you have a national command authority there, which is responsible for nuclear weapons. And that consists of nine people, four of them military and five of them political, and it's chaired by the prime minister. Outstanding. Thank you, Stephen. We had this great question that came in um, from a listener at the end of last year that you already helped us answer on Twitter, but I want to break it down here a little bit more. So POTUS has this nuclear football near them at all times, right? Uh, it accompanies him everywhere he goes. It's not really supposed to be that far away from him at any time in case there's an emergency. He has direct access to the capability to launch nuclear weapons. But we know now that President Trump will not be attending Joe Biden's inauguration. And so this this transfer of power and transfer of, of the very distinct nuclear codes will be a little bit more abstract this year. I know that we're not just talking about, you know, as he shakes his hand up at the podium, he hands them the codes or anything like that. But it sort of brings up with it some interesting national security concerns too. So tell us, you know, how do we ensure the smooth transition of the nuclear launch authority from one president to another? Uh, well, the way it traditionally happens is that at noon at the Capitol, or as the president-elect takes the oath of office to become the president, the aide carrying the football essentially hands it off to another military aide who then takes it over for the incoming uh, president. And that happens behind the scenes, and it's, it's, it's completely seamless. The day before or the day of the inauguration, the incoming president typically receives a briefing where they are walked through their responsibilities and probably given their biscuit, although the codes would not be active until they are sworn in. Um, but that's that's how that happens. So how this will work on January the 20th, assuming that Trump is not at the Capitol, which he said he won't be. Uh, so let's say he goes to Mar-a-Lago in Florida, wherever he is, presumably the aide with the briefcase will still be with him. And at noon, the aide with the briefcase will presumably walk away. <laughs> and at the same moment at the Capitol, a military, military aide with a different briefcase will become invested with that authority for then President Biden. And that's how that will work. Now, I should say that the vice president also has a military aide who also carries a nuclear football. Now, people have raised the question of, well, wait a minute, if there's a football for the vice president and a football for the president, and the president isn't around, how does the president's football get to the president-elect, who then becomes president at noon on January 20th. And the answer to that, I believe, is that there are multiple footballs. There are at least three. 
one for the president, one for the vice president, and one for the designated survivor. And that one gets deployed at events like inaugurations, but also the State of the Union, because the whole government is gathering together. So the designated survivor at these events, um, you know, sits it out. And the last inauguration four years ago, there were actually two designated survivors, Orrin Hatch as the president pro tempore of the Senate, and Jay Johnson as, as the Secretary of Homeland Security. And the president pro tempore of the Senate is third in line at the presidency after the vice president and the Speaker of the House. That Orrin is retired now, so that falls to Chuck Grassley, who's 87 years old. So maybe he'll be one of the designated survivors. And the other one, we don't know. What the pro- one of the problems you have this year is that there's so many people who have resigned who, or who are serving in an acting capacity. And I believe serving in an acting capacity without Senate confirmation disqualifies you from being in the line of succession. So there's a smaller list. And, and those people will be outside of Washington somewhere uh, in a hotel with an aide, with an identical copy of the football, and they'll watch this on television. And they also have a doctor with them from the White House medical office in case anything were to happen. So for a few hours, they have the potential of being the president of the United States. And then when it's over and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are sworn in, the Secret Service aides and the military doctor, or the doctor and everybody else disappears, and the aide with the football disappears, and they go back to being whoever they were um, beforehand. So there will be at least two footballs at the Capitol next week, one for the vice president and one for the president. And then there'll be potentially two others somewhere else with the designated successor. And then there'll be one with Trump until noon that day. Interesting. So I want to take a step back here because this is fascinating. I just want to go back to something that you've already said here. The fact that basically the entirety of U.S. government is located in one place on a couple of different days. This year, obviously, because of coronavirus and the threat of domestic terrorism, that may be a little bit different at this inauguration. But you have, at the very least, uh, the current president, usually, the current vice president, the incoming president, the incoming vice president. And then on top of that, you have the Speaker of the House. You have all sorts of folks that are in the line of succession. You know, basically, the head of government from all three branches is there. Now, a tremendous risk of terrorism or in the event of a nuclear crisis or a nuclear attack. So have to have a designated survivor, somebody that can launch response should there be some sort of decapitating strike, right? That's basically the point. The question that I think is so interesting, and and I think you've already brought it up here talking about Chuck Grassley, is that there will be no Senate-confirmed cabinet for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris does there become a hole there for this new administration? They're still both on site. Uh, They've been sworn in. The Trump folks are now out. Who is their designated survivor while they're still located in sort of one area here? Is that why we have Chuck Grassley, somebody else that's in, who's not part of the presidential election cycle, but is in fact still in the line of succession? That's sort of an interesting thing. We only tend to think of presidents and vice presidents having authority over the nuclear command and control. But now you're talking about a senator with it, too. I think that's particularly interesting. Right. Well, and even if things were going normally this year and the Senate was already holding hearings for President-elect Biden's nominees, they wouldn't be confirmed 
until after the inauguration. That's typically how it how it goes. So he wouldn't have anybody in place, even if they were in the pipeline. So four years ago, Jay Johnson, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security, was one of the two designated survivors. And had anything happened that day, he would have been in charge of the entirety of the U.S. government. Um, so somebody from the Trump administration will be the designated survivor. And if anything happens, he or she will be in charge of, of the government. So um, hopefully that won't be the case, but that's how it works. And I mean, that, that's a, is a whole separate issue from what we're talking about today. But yeah, I mean, the government could go in a completely different direction if something horrendous were to happen there. Yeah. So I think I think that you've done a tremendous job here for us of sort of bringing up some concerns and issues with the U.S. command and control structure. Sort of the inverse of this, like we said at the top, Nancy Pelosi has called the president unhinged. She's wanted to seek that there are safeguards between him and his ability to launch nuclear weapons, which may or may not exist. But I think that sort of the historical inverse of this is just as interesting and just as challenging. There are other human factors at stake with the way that the U.S. command and control system is set up. The fact that it rests solely on one person, other than just their well-being at the time of needing to make a decision. For instance, you know, a couple of examples that we were thinking of, apparently Jimmy Carter sent his nuclear biscuit to the dry cleaners. Uh, Bill Clinton supposedly lost his for more than a month. And then when asked by the military aid, hey, I need to you know, update your biscuit, he said, oh, I don't know where it is. Yeah, I mean, those, those have happened. And, and of course, when Reagan was shot and, and taken to the White House, his clothes were cut off of him and the, the biscuit was separated from him for a while. And it became actually the FBI took it away as evidence and there was a real fight to get it back. So there was there was, you know, in addition to Al Haig saying that he was in charge, there were other other potential issues there. So um, and it's you know, it's interesting. I said, you know, vice president has their own football. That hasn't always been the case. Uh, Not every vice president since Eisenhower has. Nixon did. Um, I don't think Johnson did. And uh, and then in more recent years, you know, obviously Mike Pence does. And uh, Joe Biden did as as vice president, but yeah, I mean, there's there's backups and backups and 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 backups here, and uh, yeah, things you know mistakes happen. There's been a few times where the football was actually separated from the president. One time, uh, Gerald Ford was traveling overseas, hopped in the limousine and sped away, and the football aide had to rush around with the Secret Service trying to catch up with him. <laughs> Uh, one time Clinton was in Washington at a NATO meeting and uh, split early without the aide, and the aide had to hoof it back uh, to the White House. And another time George H.W. Bush was somewhere in California and similarly left somewhere quickly and the aide had to had to rendezvous with him. But that typically doesn't that doesn't happen. But it is one of these things that again, if you if you look for it, you know what you're looking for. Uh, you can see it. And I actually started following the football at the beginning of the Trump presidency because I was so interested in it because it was so iconic and people were already, even the year before, were raising questions like, what's going to happen when he gets control of nuclear weapons? And to see it there next to him, you know, with the aid really brings home the power that that one person has. Um, The aides that carry the football, like everybody else who works with nuclear weapons or who is in the nuclear chain of command, undergo a stringent background check. Uh, The check for the AIDS is called Yankee White. They also have to be 
uh, surveyed regularly by the Personnel Reliability and Assurance Program, which assures that you are mentally capable of carrying out this job and that you are not under any financial or family stress or medical stress or anything else like that. I should point out there's also a, for everybody except the president, there's a two-person rule. So anybody around nuclear weapons, whether you're simply maintaining them, guarding them, or launching them, you have to have at least two people at all times, except when it comes to the president. And so the president not only doesn't have to go through a personnel reliability and assurance program, but he also does not have to check with anybody else. So that's a very serious, I think, oversight. And I think people have raised it over the years. And we might see now that Democrats will control the House and the Senate. We might see a change in that in the next few years, potentially. Absolutely. So, you know, just to sort of bring this home here, Stephen, I think that that you've done a tremendous job of sort of pointing out that this is a complex system. But like any complex system that deals with human beings, there are gaps and there are the potentials for mistakes involved. Some of them are very egregious. Uh, some of them are technical and some of them are just human. Is there a gap all of a sudden when, when the president gets in a car and, and the football isn't nearby or with him anymore? Uh, if a president is shot like Reagan, like you said, uh, who's in command of that situation all of a sudden? So my, my final question for you here is this doesn't really seem like the most secure system when we're actually drilling down and talking about it. In fact, it seems like for the most powerful nuclear arsenal on the planet that there's actually significant holes in it and that sometimes it has been compromised. So I'm curious, do, do you think that it is actually a risk that we retain all of this power in one man, that, that the United States doesn't have a two-man system, or that this current president didn't have a background check, he has significant foreign uh, obligations? Is this a system that needs to be reevaluated? Well, I can't speak too much to the technical side. Uh, I, I think there's there's two problems. One is, as we've been discussing, that the president is sort of, just as when you're elected to office, you are presumptively cleared to receive highly classified information. The president and members of Congress do not get security clearances. And I'm not in a position to say that that should change, and it would be, I think, pretty complicated to do. But that's one problem. The other is, again, this whole personnel reliability and assurance program. Donald Trump may be sine qua non. He might be a unique situation here, but the fact that this process, this uh, uh, institution wasn't set up to address that, I think is, is worrisome. It may, it could happen again. So I think that certainly should be reviewed. Should you have more than one person involved in making the decision? I think that would be appropriate. There's a question about, you know, how that would work. Again, this is, this is all being driven by the, the still sort of lingering Cold War era assumption that there might come a point where we are attacked out of the blue and in the worst case scenario by submarines off, off the East Coast, in which case, if the president is on the East Coast, he or she has five minutes or less to make a decision. And so it's all being driven by that. I don't think that that's terribly realistic anymore, but that's the assumption driving this is that we have to act quickly all of the time, which is why the football is the president's constant companion everywhere that he or she goes. So if there's a time constraint, how can you have more than one person involved? And who should that person be? Should that person be a member of Congress? Should the attorney general be involved? Should it be the secretary of defense? Should the vice president have to sign off on this? Whoever it is, I think you should have at least one other person in the room, maybe two, so that you can actually have a reasonable discussion about it. 
But fundamentally, the issue is, you know, should we have to use nuclear weapons quickly at all? Why can't we simply wait out what it is in the event that it's an accident, for example, you don't want to go off and make things worse? Why can't we take a little bit of time? Um, we've really hardened a lot of our facilities and our weapons to buy ourselves some of that time. The trouble is that people and communication networks can only be hardened so much, people really not at all. And that's pretty much the weakest link. And really, since the dawn of the nuclear age, it's been the case that just a handful of weapons could take out our ability to, to retaliate, which is why, A, we work to, to make this happen quickly, and B, we've never given up the option of striking first because we don't want to lose the ability to strike at all. And we've been fortunate we've never had to do that, but you know, it creates enormous pressures on one person or even if we change it, a couple of people. I should note, by the way, that to, to get back to you know, how this would work and how this might be compromised, various presidents over the years, beginning with Eisenhower, have pre-delegated nuclear launch authority to military commanders under certain very discrete circumstances. Uh, there may well be some pre-delegation today, so that in the effect that everybody in the presidential line of succession is destroyed, the military still has the ability to retaliate because the president has given the, the authority to do that. And there's all sorts of secret orders that the president has issues that we don't have uh, the ability to look at. But in theory, that all makes deterrence stronger because adversaries know or suspect that no matter what they do, somebody out there with control of some weapon somewhere will be able to utterly destroy them if they try anything. But how that how that would work today, we don't know. Fascinating. There's so much more to break down here. I would love I would love to talk about the secret orders that subcommanders have someday. You know, but well, Stephen, thank you so much. We really appreciate this. We really appreciate your time and all your help. And and you know, we look forward to talking to you more in the future. Thank you very much for having me. This episode has demonstrated some of the serious risks involved in having just one person in charge of the most significant and destructive weapons on Earth. On reflection, it seems outrageous that in a nation that has been so concerned with democracy and checks and balances, the president is seemingly a thermonuclear monarch, and that ultimately, our sustained deterrence, not to mention the lives of everyone on this planet, rests on whether or not the president is having a good day, or remembers where he put his nuclear credit card. I think it's easy to see how what were once very real fears shaped this system. But just because something has always been a certain way doesn't mean it should continue like that. As Stephen pointed out, other nations, even the Russians, have systems with more checks than ours. And let me just be clear here. While President Trump may have put this issue in starker relief than ever before, I don't think any person should have this much power. We shouldn't have to fear that our own leader might launch a nuke in a moment of madness or have to resort to extra constitutional means to ensure that an unhinged leader can't crack open the nuclear football and find a pre-vetted and legal strike option to destroy Tehran. It is time that we have a real discussion about our nuclear launch authority. And Stephen is right. Congress needs to be involved. And our military leaders need to do more than just obfuscate what risks are posed by our current system. 
Perhaps one of President Trump's lasting legacies is showing us that it's time to update our nuclear command authority for the first time since the 1940s. And for all our sakes, I certainly hope so. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It's produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, if you have a question or comment, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. You can also follow Stephen Schwartz and his documentation of the nuclear football on Twitter at Atomic Analyst. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.